0: Welcome and thanks for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. To learn more about Community Christian Church, visit us online at cccsterling.org. Today's message comes from Abdu Murray. Well, good morning. It's uh, really a pleasure to um, be sharing with you this morning. I, you know, this is my actually my second live. I did a dress rehearsal a, couple, a week ago um, at another church. It's my second in-person uh, speaking in the past, what has it been, 2,000, 4,000 years since we... Um, um, uh, it seems like a long time. I mean, it's funny because the, the amount of virtual events I've done over the past few uh, months has been just so high. I mean, I was doing events that were... Uh, probably 40 events in the past few months, which I couldn't do when I was traveling to do it. Uh, I would do a, an event, I think I did one in Singapore in the morning, and I did one in Texas the same day. which so I couldn't pull off before. <laughs> this wasn't possible to pull off, but I could do it now. Uh, so this is actually a drink of cold water, it really is. Uh, to be able to speak to someone and look them in the eye and see your faces and actually hear something in response, whether it's a boo or an amen, it doesn't matter to me now. Uh, so it's great to, st- to have some level of response. You know, as I was um, uh, sharing uh, a few weeks ago when I was standing on this very stage or sitting on this very stage with Pastor Chris, and we were just talking through some things during a, uh, a Facebook Live event, um, we were talking about the year 2020. And I want to say this to begin and set the stage for what I want to speak with you about today um, is that, you know, every Everybody at their brother basically uh, said in January, 2020 is the year of vision. doesn't matter if you were a pastor or you were a captain of industry, whatever it was, CEOs of major Fortune 500 companies were talking about how, how uh, 2020 was the year of vision, either corporate vision, business vision, spiritual vision, whatever it was, we were going to see some kind of major clarity in our time so that we could push forward and move forward into the uh, well into the new millennium now and really make a difference and see what's going on in our world, but then the Australian wildfires happen, and then COVID-19 happens, and lockdown happens, and then all the civil unrest we see is happening as well, and we think all of this has ruined it. Our vision is completely clouded. We can't see anything anymore. Everything is unclear, or maybe the word of the year now is unprecedented, Um, but unprecedented uh, clarity is gone. Unprecedented cloudiness seems to have arrived. Can I challenge that? Um, I don't think that we're cloudy at all. I think that if you've seen anything, whether it's through COVID, whether it's through what's happened um, in the racial tensions in our world today or whatever it might be, I think we're seeing things quite clearly, maybe things we've never seen before. And it's time to actually see that. I mean, I want you to give give you a quick example. This one's free. Um, uh, I remember during the whole lockdown thing, when it was about a month or a month and a half into the lockdown thing, we had some visitors come to our door. I won't tell you who, but we had some visitors come to our door. All they're doing was dropping off something. Well, I was on a video chat with some of our office members uh, in our Detroit office because we couldn't actually meet. I was on a video chat and someone came to our door and you'd have thought Santa Claus himself had showed up with a bag of presents just for the Murray family, because everybody just jumped up and went to the front door, people. And we elbow bumped and all this stuff. And what was interesting to me that showed something is that one thing we've been doing, when you look at um, the way people interact, and I've walked into a number of rooms with some young people, and I, of course, uh, I'm the father of some young folks who have done this. You walk into a room and everyone's laughing at a joke that no one's telling because they're looking, they're passing it around on their phones in the same room and no one's saying anything, but everyone thinks it's hysterical. Um, so we're, we're, we're looking at these f- screens all the time. And one of the things that this event showed me that when someone showed up and everyone couldn't wait to actually look into the face of another human being was maybe one of the clarities we're seeing is that we are tired of screens yeah. and that maybe we need to see another human being. Now we shouldn't jettison them hundred percent because some of you are watching this on a screen and that's fine but there is that call, that that, that yearning for other people to see, actually see people with your own eyes once again and interact a little bit. And the dinner table is now something that you kind of have to do, where it was considered a luxury before. Now it's just, what else are you gonna do? Um, So you're seeing this sort of resurgence in human connection. And I think we're seeing clearly that human connection is something we've desperately crave, even though we tried our hardest to socially distance ourselves before COVID-19. And now the word social distancing scratches everyone's ears wrong because we're seeing things clearly. I do think that the Lord uses things, doesn't cause things, but he uses things to show us what we otherwise would not have seen. Now, I say that because I want to sh- talk about how we can see Jesus in a way that maybe will surprise you or see it afresh and see really how it is that Jesus is actually what Leslie Newbigin calls our eternal contemporary What a beautiful phrase that actually is, to say that Jesus is our eternal contemporary. That suggests that Jesus is timeless, though he was moving, acting, ministering, dies and arises again at a certain time, 2,000 years ago, in a certain place, in a forgotten sort of forsaken outpost of the Roman Empire so long ago, he seems irrelevant, but every time you open a page of the New Testament, you see just how applicable and timely and, and, and rich and relevant he actually is to our day, 7,000 miles from where he lived, 2,000 years separated from his actual life, and yet here he is speaking to us today in a way that is fresh, new, and sorely needed. I want to sustain that for you this morning as I go through how if we see Jesus afresh, in fact, we see him in a fresh way, but in the old way, you'll see just how relevant he actually is to you and to me today. And I think that comes from what I'm going to speak about today is the phenomenon known as the cancel culture. Now, the cancel culture, obviously in a room like this, uh, given the ages that are here, there are some people who know what I'm talking about because you're young enough to know what cancel culture actually is. But there are some of you who are old enough to not know any idea about what I'm talking about uh, because you're like, what is this cancel culture you're talking about? Well, here's the nutshell of it. The cancel culture exists right now, especially on social media, where If you're engaging with someone or you're saying something and you happen to go against the socially acceptable thought of the day, whether it's on sexuality or gender or whatever else it might be, if you say something that runs afoul of what the culture has deemed to be socially acceptable, they will not engage with you in reasoned debate. If you make an argument and you present evidence and facts, that will not fly. What will happen is you will get canceled. They won't engage with you and say, well, let me uh, respond to 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 the false assumptions in your argument or let me show you three lines of evidence that show that what you're thinking might be a little askew. We used to do that, we don't do that anymore. When you say something that goes against the cultural norm, they won't respond with evidence. They will respond with hate and vitriol and cancellation. So if you're a famous person, for example, let's say you're a well-known author, or you're a famous singer, or uh, an actress, or an actor, or whatever it might be, or a sports star, and you say something on your Twitter, or usually it's on Twitter, but on any uh, social media platform you do, or you happen to be interviewed by someone, you say something that you didn't even mean necessarily, it doesn't matter. We're going to cancel you. We will call for the boycotting of all your books. We will call for the boycotting of all your movies. We will no longer uh, buy your shoes if you're uh, you know, uh, an NBA player, or whatever it might be. We will absolutely eviscerate you and cause everyone to want to abandon you. And we will call you the most heinous names possible so that you will stop talking. We don't wanna engage with you. We don't wanna hear your ideas. We want you to be quiet. And then the next person who has those same ideas might not ever say them for fear of being canceled. That's That's what the cancel culture actually is. It doesn't delight in the idea of other ideas, it actually fears them so much so that it puts them down with oppression. This seems like a new phenomenon, but I got news for you, it's about 2,000 years old, maybe even longer than that. It comes from the Middle East. We invented it, thank you very much. (laughs) This is old. This is really old. It happened in Jesus' day all the time. And I want to show this to you through the pages of Scripture, how the cancel culture is not a Western phenomenon. It's just a Western version of an Eastern and Middle Eastern phenomenon. You know, uh, when when you look at missiologists, missiologists are people who study the the practice of missions work. Missiologists and sociologists will break up the world in terms of morality, in terms of the ways certain, certain cultures Um, will enforce morality with the way they'll speak about morality, how it's enforced, and what to do when someone has either gone afoul of the culturally accepted morality, or they have championed something that is of culturally moral virtue. What happens? So missiologists break up the world in these ways. So uh, this is a slightly bit, a bit technical, but bear with me for a moment. So the West is considered what is an innocence guilt culture because we're very individualistic here. I mean, think about the way in which the West talks about um, your ambitions and your life. It's your personal freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of expression, freedom of thought, all these wonderful things. And we also want to, Uh, foster individual innovation, individual accountability. Go West, young man, and we pioneer and we forge ahead and we create new industries and we love this kind of thing and it's good, it's got got plenty of benefit. But like everything, this rampant individualism within the Western culture also has its shadow side. Everything's got a shadow side, everything does. The only one who doesn't cast a shadow is the one who is the light himself. But. Individualism has its shadow side, and its shadow side is that when you are highly individualistic, you don't really consider your impact on the collective. I did it my way, Frank Sinatra says. And I don't care what you think, and I don't care who it hurts. And so we go about doing things our own way, not thinking about the collective. But no man is an island as they say. And so what you do actually does have an impact on people outside of you, on your family, on your culture, and even on your country. But we sort of don't think about that because the individual is more important than the collective in a Western society. And so what happens is is that when you do something immoral that goes against the cultural norms, you particularly and individually are guilty of it. And because of our individuality, we have an inner sense, an individual sense of conscience, which causes us to say, man, I feel terrible about this. I've been really gnawing at me. I've been staying awake at night. I need to go apologize to this person. I need to make it right. So if you do something wrong in the West, in an innocence and guilt culture, when you are guilty, you want to become innocent. And so what you wanna do is actually make up for it by doing something. So if you do something wrong, you can do something right to fix it because it's all individual. The East has just as strong a sense of morality, but the enforcement is not individual, it's collective. Because the East is what's called an honor and shame culture. So if I do something or I believe something in the East that is um, uh, laudatory or very, very uh, of high value to that culture, I achieve honor. It's a perceived honor. The culture values me, they they will uh, applaud me there'll be a praise because I've honored my father and my mother, I've honored my family, and then my family has honored because of my own honor, uh, 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 the community. Then the community actually honors the country and the entire region. Honor is a big important issue here. So it's enforced, it's, it's given a, um, uh, a reinforcement from the collective. But the same is true also if you do something immoral. So what is immoral is that which the collective or the community determines to be immoral. And tradition in honor-shame cultures is extremely important, especially when it comes to religious belief, because it is who you are. It's not what you believe, it is who you are. Even if you don't really believe it, having the label, you know, Christian, Muslim, Hindu, Jew, whatever it is, all that stuff is important for your identity, not necessarily your behavior. So if you go against it, now what happens is the collective punishes that because you have dishonored your family. You have dishonored the community and then you have dishonored the country. Now, it's got some good aspects to it too because you do care about what you say, think and believe and even you know, and do, how it affects other people. You take other people into consideration. The shadow side of an honor and shame culture is that even if something is true If you discover after years and years of investigation that the gospel message is actually true in an honor shame culture, and you're looking at it and you're saying, my old worldview, as valuable as it may have been, has some things that are false in it because the gospel is actually true, and you can intellectually assent to it, and you can say in your mind, this is true, the shame culture will tell you, don't you dare believe it, because if you believe it, you will go against what the collective is enforcing, and you will betray everyone around you. So... The shadow side of honor shame is that in order to avoid the shame, you will literally on purpose believe something that is false because you're afraid of being canceled. So do you see the way the East and the West are looking much more alike than they ever have? You have this innocent skilled culture of the West individualistic. You have this honor-shame culture of the East where it's highly collective. And we often say this phrase that if you wanna describe how apart something is, they couldn't be further apart than the East is from the West. Well, that phrase is gonna go out of fashion, I think, in some sense, it's because the East and the West look very much similar. The cancel culture is an honor and shame system with Western dress. Jesus operated in an honor and shame system. He knew what it was to be shamed, he knew what it was to be honored, and he knew what it was to fear, shame, and strive desperately for public honor. He knew what that was, he knew what people went through all the time. And he comes then to offer honor to those who fear shame, and to shame those, in some senses, who thought that they had a real honor when all they had was a cheap honor they would bestow upon themselves. You see, one of the reasons why Jesus is our eternal contemporary and he's eternally significant is that the things we're dealing with now are the things he dealt with back then. And yet some people will claim that the Bible is this outdated book that has no relevance for today. Can you possibly be more wrong? It's amazing how relevant it is today. And here's where it comes down to. Amidst all the things we're seeing today and all the rises of anxiety and depression levels and then suicide levels among various people for various things, they're putting their hope in things that are fleeting whether it's government or uh, uh, industry or your finances or even your social interactions, whatever it is, they seem to be fleeting right now because they're not solid, we can't hold on to them. And so we have a rise in anxiety because we don't know who we are. Now in an honor-shame culture, it's very important to understand this. When you're looking at at the West, from an innocence guilt culture, if you do something wrong, you can do something right to make up for it. But in an honor shame system, if you shame your culture, then you become a shameful person. So when you do something wrong, you have become someone bad. That's not a matter of what you do anymore, it's a matter of who you are. So you don't need to do something to fix it, you need an identity change. And this goes right to the heart of what Ravi has said so many times from various platforms when he says, Jesus did not come to make bad people good, he came to make dead people live. Identity, an identity switch is what you need. Let me give you a couple of examples of how this has happened in the West before we move into the passage of scripture. If you go to Matthew chapter 20, we'll get there, uh, I promise, and show you just how this actually plays out in our day, um, but also played out in Jesus's day as well. Here's an example I wanna give to you. The very famous author, one of the most famous authors in the world is J.K. Rowling. If you don't know the name, you'll know the name of her books, the Harry Potter series. She's a, I think she's a billionaire because of how well those books have sold. And she's got various offshoots from those books and the movies and all this stuff. Well, if you're paying attention to the news at all, you'll know that J.K. Rowling ran afoul of the cancel culture. She happened to say something that got her in trouble. You see, she's very left of center when it comes to a lot of social issues and even political issues and all this stuff. But... Because of her background, you know, she was abused, I think mentally and I think physically. Physically, I might not be have right, but I know she was at least mentally abused. Um, she has a very strong heart in, uh, for her, for the dignity and the, and the sanctity of women. And so she believes that men and women are actually real categories of distinction, that a man is a man and a woman is a woman, and they're not each other. So she says this out loud. She says this in various uh, Twitter posts and articles. She said that she thinks there's a real, biological, actual, factual distinction between men and women. You can already see where this is going. She ran afoul of the culturally accepted sort of speak that, no, they're not really different. There's tons of fluidity between the two concepts of male and female. It's not socially constructed, she says, but the culture says it is, and that her in a heap of trouble, and she gets just deluged from death threats of physical violence and the most vile, bile-filled statements that could ever be put onto a person. She has to deal with this over and over again, but she's a pretty tough one, and she takes it for a long time, and she's not bending in her position at all, not at all. But what they're doing is they're canceling her. Even the actors, at least some of the actors, who played the roles in the movies that were based on her books have disavowed or distanced themselves from J.K. Rowling, the person they thought was a hero, not even three years ago. They canceled her. It's a very public cancellation. But I wanna share with you the story also of a very private cancellation, and maybe this is the one you can relate to. There was a woman named Anne Darwin Anne Darwin was married to a man named John Darwin, and they were were very well off financially. And uh, John Darwin is a bit of a conniver. To call him a bit of a conniver is super understated. He is a sociopath. He's manipulative. He is dishonest and all these things. Well, he comes up with a scheme because they run against some hard times. They run afoul of some very serious hard times. Um, And so their finances are doing poorly and all this. So he comes up with a scheme and he says to Anne, his wife, he says, why don't we fake my death? essentially. Uh, We'll go on a canoe trip. We'll go out boating. We'll go on a canoe trip. And then you'll claim when I come, you'll come back by yourself. You'll claim that there was a storm or something. I can't remember the exact details of the uh, the scheme, but you'll claim that I was lost at sea. And then they will spend thousands and thousands of dollars and thousands and thousands of hours to search for me. But I'll just go and I'll go into hiding. And for a couple of years, they'll look for me. Then they'll declare me dead and we'll pick up a huge amount of life insurance. So she didn't want to do the scheme. She didn't want to do that because they had two sons who they would have to tell that their father was dead. And then basically, if they create their life together, because his plan was, we have, some, we have a home, I think in Central America somewhere, we'll go to that home and we'll live happily, happily ever after on this obscure beach somewhere in the lap of luxury. But we have to tell our kids that I'm dead. So reluctantly, she goes along with it she does it. And sure enough, thousands and thousands of dollars are spent on the search for John Darwin. Years and years are spent looking for him. All the while the insurance company smells something funny, and an investigation ensues. And five years after the ruse began, someone caught a photo of John and Ann Darwin together on a beach, I think in Belize. And it was over. The ruse was over all the attempts to, 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 to defraud people. It was over, they were discovered and it was done. And they were both indicted and both convicted and all this stuff. And, John, and, and Anne Darwin was convicted of felony fraud haven't done what she did. And she was called a fraudster, she was called a convict, she was called a thief, Uh, all the names you can, I can't even name on the stage the names that she was called, all these things. But you know what stuck with her the most, the thing that hurt her the most? Not all the the, the horrible names, which by the way, almost all of which were accurate, but all the names she was called, as, as horrible as they were, the name that stuck with her and caused her to consider taking her own life was bad mother because she told her kids for five years that their dad was dead. She sustained the lie to her adult children for five years and they didn't want anything to do with her anymore. They were so done with their mother, they, this woman who could lie to us for five straight years, and they were the ones who were calling her bad mother, and her identity was destroyed. And in an honor and shame culture, like I said, when you do something wrong, you become someone bad. Well, that's what exactly what happened with Anne Darwin, and that's what almost took her life, it was that moniker. That's a very Western story involving very Western people with seriously Eastern connotations seriously Eastern connotations because of the honor and shame paradigm that's there. Now, I wanna show you how Jesus speaks into this because he does it repeatedly. You know, the, the Bible is not an, a Western book. It has influence in the West, but it is predominantly Eastern. The olive oil sort of drips from each page of the Bible. And you can smell the cummins and the garlic in every one of the conversations on the breath of the people who are speaking. You can really see it. And Jesus lives and moves in this area here. So you can see this happening all the time uh, in Jesus's day. You know, we have this thing you engage. You ever try to engage with someone in a, in a, in a, in a rational discussion on social media? That never works because it's all just constant trying to one-up each other, especially if you have an audience, especially if you're doing it not through direct messaging, but you're doing it on a post, actually, and the comments are going, well, you've got an audience to, to think of. You're, you're not going to lose or back down. That just happened in Jesus' day all the time. Scholars call it the honor game. Jesus engaged in an honor game all the time, where the honor game is like this, is if you're engaging with someone in a public discussion and you don't like what they have to say, you will say something. You'll ask a question, not to get an answer. You're asking the question to make the other person look foolish, so that they lose honor in the crowd's sight and you gain honor. It's this whole honor game It happened all the time. And you can think of it. Think of, it. Think of the examples that happened throughout Jesus' ministry. Uh, the Sadducees. The Sadducees come up to Jesus. Now the Sadducees are a sect. Of, uh, of Jews who don't believe in a physical resurrection. They don't believe in any afterlife whatsoever. And they think the idea of resurrection is silly. And they come to challenge Jesus on this. And they say, oh, good teacher, you know, they don't mean that, but they start off with that because you've got to butter a guy up in the Middle East. Um, so they, they say, oh, good teacher, there was a man among us who was married and before he had children, he, di- he died. And his wife, according to our custom, then marries his brother. But before they could have children, he died as well. And then she married his brother. And they kept going and going, and there were seven brothers. And by the time they all died, there was no children. And then finally, she dies. Now, she was married to seven people in the afterlife whose, if the resurrection is true, whose wife will she be? Trying to make him look like a fool. Now, it's an actual honest question if if it was asked with the sincerity of wanting to know the answer. But Jesus knows they're not interested in the, in, in the answer because he knows how the honor game is played. They weren't asking him a public question to get an actual answer. They were asking him a public question to make him look like a fool in front of everybody. And then what does he do? He says, you don't know the scriptures. In those days, they were be married nor given in marriage. Basically what he says is, you ignoramuses. But Jesus is, you know, tactful. So he doesn't say those words exactly. He does other places, but not in this particular instance. He basically points out is that you know every letter of this law, but you don't even know what it really says. They lost honor and he gained it in the eyes of the crowd. Then the Bible has this curious phrase. Sometimes you wonder what it means because the Bible says in these kind of instances, it says, and no one dared ask him any more questions. Now, you think to yourself, wow, I I could see why, because he wins this game all the time. But then you read further, and you find out people are asking him questions. Like, is this a contradiction? It says no one dared ask him any more questions, but then a little while later, they're asking him questions, in the same book of the Bible, by the way. How can this be? Contradiction? No, if you understand what's going on in an honor-shame system of the East, you understand what this actually means. No one dared ask him any more questions public questions. If you'll notice something, all the questions that follow are private until his trial. Which all bets are off at that point, but they're all private. Here's why. You'll notice something. All the public questions Jesus gets asked are not intended to get an answer. They're intended to trap him. But the private questions, that's different. They actually want an answer. Think of Nicodemus coming to Jesus under color of night where he's there and he does not want to be discovered because he fears, even though he is a high official, extremely admired among the Jewish leaders, he is afraid that if he approaches Jesus with sincerity and honesty, that they'll cancel him. They'll put him out of the synagogue. And he can't have that, so he comes in secret. And you see it over and over and over again. The private conversations are the real conversations. Now, I remember I was at an open forum at uh, a big facility, a huge facility in Calgary. And I was speaking on the topic of meaning, man's quest for meaning. Can you really have any meaning in your life without God? Or is it just basically an illusion? This is my topic, man's quest for meaning. And so I spoke and then we had an open forum, which means that people come to the microphone and ask questions. Now at this particular open forum, there were two features that made this uh, uh, an interesting place. One is this, the way you could ask questions was at a microphone, you could come to the microphone in front of thousands of people, or you could text it in. You could text in your question. Keep that in mind. Number two is that the audience was extremely mixed. You had Christians in the audience for sure, but you had lots and lots of non-Christians, whether they were uh, uh, atheists or agnostics, you had lots of Muslims, lots of Hindus in the audience, lots of Easterners were in the audience as well. What was interesting was this, is that when they came down to the microphone, especially the Easterners, when the Easterners came down to the microphone, they asked questions in a brusque, sort of challenging way if they were non-Christians. They'd say stuff like, I remember one Muslim guy said this, he says, Show me one place in the Bible, even one place in the Bible, where Jesus says the words, I am God, worship me. Where does he say that? One place. Now that's a a bit of a, a, a trick question because he knows that I know there is no such place where Jesus says in exactly those words, that thing. So what do you do in that instance? Because he comes, again, public question in front of everybody. He doesn't want an actual answer. He wants to show me that I don't know what I'm talking about. So what do you do? You respond and I say, can I ask you a question back? I have two questions for you before I answer your question. Question number one is, is this an important issue for you? If I showed you where Jesus says he was God, would you become a Christian? In other words, do you really want to know? And he sort of hemmed and hawed for a little bit on that. Um, And then I said this, does he have to say it your way? Who do you think you are to tell God how he should say things? He's got to say it in your phraseology, can't he say it his own way? And then I listed like the 35 different places where Jesus says he's God. So now that that was that interaction. But there was another Muslim who asked a question, but this time over text. And the question was this, I'm a Muslim and I believe in God and you spoke about meaning and belief in God, yet I'm bored and I find my life to be meaningless. Why is that? Do you see the distinction? The public question was a challenge. The private question, which was anonymous, was a question that desperately wanted an answer. Jesus is our eternal contemporary. That's exactly what he lived with all the time. You ever see this phenomenon? If you're on social media, especially Twitter. Twitter is like the cesspool of all anger. Um, uh, They'll start with this, honest question, dot, dot, dot. Then they ask a question they don't want an honest answer to. It's an honest question. I really want to know the answer to this, but the question is worded in a way that makes every answer seem like a moronic answer. It's not really an honest question. That's what happened with Jesus all the time. All the time. That makes Jesus our eternal contemporary all the time. Now, I wanna give you one more example then I wanna turn to the scripture to show you how Jesus actually answers this and then bestows upon you and me the the honor that we're looking for in this culture. And we think it's from praise from people, but it really isn't. J.K. Rowling makes that statement about gender and sexuality, and she's excoriated for it, and all these things, and people are just losing their minds over the whole thing. But then she and a bunch of other people, Noam Chomsky, uh, Malcolm Gladwell, uh, Salman Rushdie, and a bunch of different writers from all over the world, including journalists, they signed a joint statement calling for the, the right to have free speech, even unsavory speech, speech that no one really likes, but. We need to have the ability to have free speech because we're stifling people's ideas and we're, ru- we're losing who we actually are as Western people. Everything about that document, except for some of the blame that they, f- they, they throw politically, there's a little bit of that jabbed in. It's a left-leaning document, but on the free speech issue, it's 100% accurate. I mean, it, It's exactly what they're talking about. A lot of people sign this thing. They sign it and they're on board. Yay, rah, free speech. We love it. Until someone points out to, one, uh, to a very prominent writer who's on the left. Um, and this is not a left-right thing, by the way, there's plenty of people on the right who signed this document too, or who could, Um, but they pointed out to this person, by the way, did you know that J.K. Rowling signed this document? Oh my goodness, I'm removing my name from that document. I can't, I can't, no, 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 I'm, I'm done. Do you see what's weird about that? What's weird about that is that this person agrees with everything the document says, but she doesn't like the people who signed it because they're the wrong kind of person. And so she removes her name from a document she agrees with because I can't be in the presence of such shameful people. Honor and shame, cancellation, cancellation. Jesus deals with this so wonderfully. Now go to Matthew chapter 20. One of the things that we point out in the book, by the way, is the way Jesus uses parables and they're so deep and so marvelous. Honestly, you could spend, I would even say a year studying any one, any one, of Jesus's parables, because they're so rich with depth and meaning. I'm gonna give you one strand, maybe two strands of meaning from the parable of the master of the vineyard found in Matthew chapter 20, and something that is so specifically Eastern and so specifically honor shame that it applies to today's Western cancel culture in a way that might surprise you, because you have to look at it through the honor shame lens and you'll see something maybe you didn't see before. It's always been there among the many, many different things that are there. And I could go on and on, I have a whole chapter on it. But here's the the parable. Let me read it for you. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Pause for a moment. This happens today. It's day laborers. You know, guys, pipe fitters or or drywall people or uh, uh, rough carpenters. They'll go and they'll stand in the Home Depot uh, parking lot in certain areas and they'll look for work. And hopefully a general contractor will come by and say, hey, you need some labor? Uh, You need some work, blah, blah, blah. Come work for me. It happens all the time now. Happens all the time. Happened back then. So they look for work. And typically in those situations, by the way, when you don't get picked, you just go home. Because they hire in the morning. And back then, this is exactly what happened. So he was looking for laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, put a pin on that word agreeing, this is important. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius for a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. In other words, he came back. He hires the first round. And then typically people just leave, they go home. But he comes back later and he sees more people just standing around idle, waiting for work. And to them, he said, you go into the vineyard too and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? I mean, they're there all day. There's one hour of work left in the whole workday, one hour, and they're still waiting for work. And he says, why? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborer and pay them their wages, beginning with the last, up to the first. In other words, pay the last guys first, the guys who worked an hour, pay them first. Pay the guys who worked all day, pay them last. Why? You'll see later in the parable, of course, because he wants the first guys to see it. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. In other words, the master of the vineyard, I skipped the one verse, he pays the the last guys who worked only an hour, he paid them a denarius for the whole day's labor, which is exactly what he paid, sorry, he paid the guys who came last a denarius for one hour of work, which is the same amount of money he paid the guys who worked all day. And the guys who worked all day are like, we're gonna get more money. So the last shall be, will be first and the first last. There's a lot of theological truth here in the context of the conversation he has with his disciples. Talks about sort of the idea of placement and honor and dignity at the kingdom of heaven and all these kind of things. But I want to point out something specific to you It relates to the cancel culture and an honor-shame mentality. When the vineyard owner goes and he hires the first guys to work He hires who he needs basically, because he's not a moron. And the reason I know this is because in the parable, the vineyard owner is a proxy for God. He's representing God in this particular parable. So he hires who he needs and they go and they work. Now, all the other guys should have went home and they would have gone home in shame because they weren't able to provide a wage to feed their families. They would have gone home to their wives and their children and said, sorry guys. Not today. One of the ultimate forms of shame you can bear as a Middle Eastern man, especially back then. But they wait around for whatever reason. And the master of the vineyard comes back for whatever reason and he sees them. He says, you go work a third time, you go work. A fourth time, you go work. He comes back a fifth time, you guys go work, I'll pay you. Why did he do that? And why do they wait around? Notice the question. says, why do you sit here idle all day? The master of the vineyard asked the question because they shouldn't have been there. Every Middle Easterner hearing this parable that Jesus was giving was wondering the same thing. What are they still doing there? They should have left by now. It's hopeless. There was no reason to wait there. They should have gone home and just borne their shame and hope for another better day the next day. But they waited around and the master says, why? And he says, because no one's hired us. They didn't want to go home in shame. They held out hope, they had faith that someone would honor them and someone honors them. Now, what's interesting to me is that the master of the vineyard doesn't just give them charity. He doesn't say, you guys been waiting around all day. Here, just take a dollar and go home and tell your your wives and your kids that they got food on the table today. He could have done that. He didn't do that, he gave them work. So they could go home with an actual honor. Here's the kicker. Why does the master of the vineyard pay the last guys the same amount of money he pays the first guys? Not because they worked as hard, but because they had faith all day that someone would honor them and their faith was credited to them as if it was work. One can only think of Abraham. Isn't it amazing how the Bible coheres from Genesis to the New Testament? The same message, Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness because of his faith, not his works. And then these people in this who are waiting for work, their faith that someone would honor them is credited to them as if it was work itself? Do you see how the Bible actually goes from start to finish throughout the whole thing in a consistent message? If the, you pay attention into the little details, you'll see it. Now, I didn't see this honor-shame issue at the, uh, the moment I read this passage, but 30 seconds into it, I wasn't even a Christian when I first read this. The first thing I thought of is that's unfair. But 30 seconds later, my Lebanese-ness sort of kicked in. And I thought, you know what's going on here? He's honoring these men because of the fear of their shame. Now, I know a lot of Western folks who read this parable and see a lot of the wonderful truths that are in it, and it's packed with various truths, but they didn't catch this one because they weren't seeing Jesus from the East. And we desperately need to see him from the East in our day because we look more and more like the East every single day. Jesus bestows on them an honor they couldn't get by working. Now, here's the beauty of this thing. This this is another free one. I'm sorry. Time runs short, but I want to give some of these things to you because they're so, it's so, the scripture sometimes wows me to the point where I can't even speak. Um, So you have this honor-shame paradigm, this very Eastern, ancient honor-shame paradigm that applies today, you know, very Eastern way of looking at things. But then Jesus does something that's very Western very Western. So in the West, we're constantly talking about philosophical conundrums. You know, we think about philosophy and theology. and We think, okay, if God is this way, but this happens as well, how do these two things possibly mesh together? They don't seem to mesh together. They seem to be irreconcilable, a contradiction. But Jesus points out the paradox, not the contradiction in this very parable. He gives you a little added extra bonus. Remember the word agree that I told you to put a pin in? Well, here's what happens. Here's why this is so important. A very Uh, uh, pervasive conundrum that we face in the West when we think about God is how can human beings have free will and be judged for their moral actions if God's in control of everything? If God is sovereign, how do human beings have accountability? Because they do whatever God makes them do in the first place. There's this whole sovereignty and free will thing. We've been discussing this for a long time, wondering what the answer is. If God's in control, how do humans have any control? We have this whole thing going on. It's in the parable. You see it right there. The guys go up to Jesus, I'm uh, sorry, to, to, to the master of the vineyard and uh, he goes and he agrees with them for a denarius's worth of work. So they engage in negotiation and of their own free will, they choose a denarius for their wage for the day. They chose it and he honored their choice. At the end, they get mad and say, why did you pay these guys this much money? You should have given us more. And what does the master of the vineyard, the one who is God in this parable say, can't I do with what's mine, whatever I want? Sovereignty, free will, they chose the denarius. God's sovereignty, he gives to who he wants in the same parable about honor and shame. How do you like that? No. You see it over and over again. I wanna give one more scriptural reference uh, to a story, a quotation, and then I'll bring it to a head. John chapter nine is one of the most paradigmatic honor and shame episodes in the Bible. There's lots, story of David, Bathsheba, Uriah, there's tons of honor and shame in that. But John chapter nine, you remember the story a man born blind, and the disciples ask Jesus, who was sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? And Jesus basically says, neither. This is for the glory of God. And then he shows you the glory of God by healing the man. But there's more to the story than just healing the guy and giving him his sight. The glory of God is not just in giving you a parlor trick that can help you in some physical way, although those are valuable and very important. He healed all the time. But there's more to this story than just the blind man receiving sight. There is a gloriousness to the identity the blind man actually gets in this whole story so you know the story the guy is born blind Jesus walks up to him and he makes mud and anoints the man's eyes with the mud why does Jesus do that he doesn't need to do it he's healed other people of other things without making mud and putting anything on them he didn't even touch some people they weren't even in the town when he healed them why because it's a sabbath day And you can't make anything on a Sabbath day, but Jesus makes mud because he's a troublemaker. (laughs) And the Pharisees find out about this. Now, if you read the context throughout the book of John, you'll see that the the Pharisees and the, the leaders of the temple say that anybody who confesses Jesus to be the Christ will be put out of the synagogue. They will be canceled. So Jesus heals this guy, this young man who was born blind, And he sees, and he's telling everybody. And the Pharisees get wind of it, and they're upset, and they're going to pin this whole, you did work on the Sabbath thing on him and all this. And so they go and they ask the townspeople, who did this and all this? And they say, well, there's his parents. And so they go over to the parents, and they say this. Now, they think a scam is afoot. They think Jesus is a charlatan anyway. And they're saying, is this really your son? That's the first thing. Who you say was born blind? Maybe he wasn't born blind, and you've been using him all this time because he was begging in the streets. You're using him as it's a lie, it's all a ruse to get money out of people. And they're like, you know, they're offended by this, but they can't be too offended because the Pharisees are saying it. So they say, we know this is our son and we know he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know. Go ask him, he is of age. That is a lie. They lied. How he now sees, we do not know. Give me a break. You mean to tell me that the son you've been praying for, for his whole life, so he can be freed from a shameful life of begging, suddenly gets his sight, and you didn't ask him who did that? Give me a break. In fact, we know that's the case because it says later on in in the the very text, it says, and they said this because they feared the Jews because they didn't want want to be put out of the temple, which is why they said, go ask him, he is of age. Now, I'm I'm gonna engage in a little bit of speculation here. Why did they say he is of age? Because he doesn't look like it because he's a young kid, he might even be 13. Like he just became a man in Jewish tradition. And so because of their fear of being canceled, they threw their teenage son to the wolves so that he might get canceled. Talk about shame, shame and abandoning the truth so you can have honor. And what does the son do? He's the hero of the story. He doesn't back out even a little. In fact, he might've been a little bit too huffy with the Pharisees and he shames them in discussion. And what do they do? They put him out of the synagogue. They get him out of the synagogue. Now, so in other words, they cancel him. So Jesus's honor and shame radar is pinging like crazy. And he goes back to the young man who's now been canceled, put out of the synagogue, but he can see. And what does he say to the young man? He says, I have come so that those who are blind may now see. You're in the kingdom. You now see the truth and that those who think they see may be shown to be blind. In other words, what he's saying is this. He's saying that in this culture, we're looking for a cheap honor that is bestowed upon you by men. I'm giving you the eternal honor that is bestowed only by the Son of God. And that's why this story applies today. We are looking for the number of likes and positive comments and we're afraid to say something because we are obsessed with the cheap honor that comes from fickle people who will change their minds tomorrow. But what you really need and what I really need is the eternal honor that comes only from God. And it's not a cheap honor, it costs God his son. I think about the Monica Lewinsky scandal of the 1990s. Who can, if you were alive then, you can't forget this. About identity, it's really what it's about, it's about identity. So I fly a lot, as you all know, uh, or as most of you know. And um, so I, given how much I've flown and how long those flights can be, I've watched everything that's you know, appropriate that Delta has to offer on the video screens. So I was basically done. I exhausted the library of things that are okay for me to watch. So I was left with TED Talks. Um, and so I saw, watched a couple of TED Talks. Um, and one was by Monica Lewinsky. It was about the culture of humiliation. Now she, you know, if you know the story, of course, she was engaged in an affair with President Bill Clinton and he denied it. She basically, they, they found out it was, it in fact did happen, everyone eventually admitted it. But do you remember what he said when the accusation happened? He was standing at a podium and he said, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Ms. Lewinsky, that's what he said. That woman, Ms. Lewinsky. Now it's interesting because the word that and the word woman, neither one of those two things is offensive. When you put them together in that tone, they're an insult. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. So Monica Lewinsky is giving this talk about all the shame that was heaped upon her. Somehow he escaped most of it, but she didn't. She didn't. She almost killed herself over it. It wasn't the guilt the Innocence guilt culture in the West, it wasn't the guilt over what she had done that almost did her in. It was the unforgiving nature of the shame that almost caused her to kill herself. And this is what she says. There are no perimeters around how many people can publicly observe you and put you in a public stockade. This shift, she continued, has created what Professor Nicholas Mills calls a culture of humiliation. Listen now, I was branded a tart, a tramp, and a few other names that I can't say. And of course, that woman. I was seen by many, but actually known by few. And I get it. It was easy to forget that that woman was dimensional, had a soul and was once unbroken. Was once unbroken. Like Anne Darwin. Anne Darwin could be called a fraudster, a cheat, a liar and all these things, but being called bad mother was what almost killed her. Monica Lewinsky could be called a tramp and a tart and you name it. And it was that woman that stuck with her because it was dismissive as if she was an opportunist or something like that. Like she wasn't, she wasn't worth the time and she was beneath him. But it's all about identity being restored. You know, Anne Darwin found forgiveness from her children. They're reconciled. John Darwin is a piece of work. There's something going on there that'll likely, after the miracle, never be fixed. But Anne Darwin got her identity back. Her face, she clung to her face. She got her identity back. And she will forever be guilty. In an innocence guilt culture, she will forever be guilty of fraud. But she is not a bad mother. Her identity. The Bible speaks of it so wonderfully, how Jesus bridges an innocence guilt culture of the West and an honor-shame culture of the East. And we see it in the Old Testament, not in the New, but the Old Testament as well. Not just in the New, I should say. Psalm 25 verses two to three says this, "O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame.'" Honor and shame culture. Just a few verses later, verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt. Honor, same, guilt, innocence, for it is great. God pardons our guilt, which brings honor to his name. He bears our shame, Hebrews chapter 12, so that we don't have to, and we can receive his honor. Honor, shame, innocence, guilt. Find their coalescence at the cross. It is no accident that the word cross has the Latin word crux as its root. The crux is the place where all things converge. And there you have it. I think there's two things that I I just wanna say and then we'll we'll, we'll pray. When I look at the culture today and why it's so angry and why things are so out of control and why the cancel culture exists, it's because we are desperately trying to be understood. We don't wanna understand anybody. We just wanna be understood. But this is a real legitimate thing. This is a legitimate search, to be understood, and then when you feel like you're not understood, you just get, you lash out at someone for not understanding you. That's the worst insult they could possibly give to you. I think of Thomas Bracken's poem, Not Understood, where he says, not understood, we move along asunder, our paths grow wider as the seasons creep. Along the years we marvel and we wonder, why life is life and then we fall asleep. Not understood, not understood, how many breasts are aching for lack of sympathy? Ah, day by day, how many cheerless, lonely hearts are breaking? How many noble spirits pass away? Not understood. Oh, God, he asks, that men would see a little clearer, or that at least judge less harshly when they cannot see. O oh God, that men would draw a little nearer to one another. They would draw nearer to thee, and then be understood." Drawing near to God is what gives you the understanding and the honor of being understood. The God who makes you knows your name and doesn't cancel you. He's never canceled anyone. He's paid the price for you and for me. Isaac Watts puts it together in his hymn. The Lord is just and kind. The meek shall learn his ways and every humble sinner find the methods of his grace. For his own goodness sake, he saves my soul from shame. He pardons though my guilt be great for my Redeemer's name. If you're feeling guilty and you wanna be made innocent once again, if you're feeling shame and you wanna know what it feels like to be honored once again, can I offer you the son of God who tells you that he despised the shame and for the joy set before him, which is your and my salvation and your and my honor. He imputes his honor to you, he gives his honor to you so that you don't have to feel like a guilt-ridden, shameful person. If that's you, I hope you see that truth in your life today. If you know someone like that, I hope that you can see that truth and offer them the eternally significant honor that only the Son of God can give. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for your Son. I'm grateful, Lord, that we don't have to live in fear of the shame, that your son despised the shame and he clung to the cross for the joy that was set before him, Lord. What an amazing truth. Thank you for being eternally contemporary. Thank you for never abandoning us to a life where we think that your truths are irrelevant. Thank you for answering objections to your to your truth before they even arise. Thank you for being a 2,000 year old message, for bringing a 2,000 year old message that never ages. It never goes bad. It's eternally ripe and we can pick of it whenever we need. You are so gracious to us. We have agreed and you you have honored our choices, yet you are generous beyond measure. May we delight in your generosity. May we seek it and find the honor we need. And may, if we are amongst those who are canceling other people because they just simply don't agree with us, may we see them once again to be made in your image and have a heart for them the way you have a heart for us. We pray these things in the name of your son who gave his life so that we could be honored. Amen. God bless you all. Have a wonderful Sunday thanks again for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. For more messages like this and other resources, visit us online at cccsterling.org.